you have a Bible, we're going to be in Judges chapter 19 this morning, and of course we'll be turning to Ruth right after that. Um, get it up here on the screen. There we go. Uh, Judges 19, um, this is really an a introduction to, this, to a series and to a study um, all about Ruth. Um, I've been wanting to do this for a long, long time. I've been preparing for this for a long, long time. You've probably heard uh, bits and pieces of, uh, of this message or this, uh, the, the series that we're going to stretch out across a couple of weeks. You've heard bits and pieces of this uh, throughout uh, the last couple of years, especially around Christmas time. Um, ironically enough, uh, it may not sound like a Christmas sermon, and it's not, uh, but the, 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 to do what I really felt led to do with Ruth, it was going to require a very, um, very difficult, uh, a very challenging introduction. Um, it was going to require um, a, an uncomfortable conversation uh, because the backstory of Ruth is, um, is a little bit messy. Uh, so this is not your typical sermon from, from myself. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's not a good thing. I don't know where that lands with you. Um, it's not a typical sermon, so come back next week for more of a typical um, message in line with what we normally try to do with God's Word. But uh, we're going to be taking a lot of winding roads together today, um, so there's not really a time for my normal introductions, trying to make everybody laugh, and usually that doesn't work anyway, so let's just get past that. Um, I want to get right to the point. I hope I don't lose you. I think our initial conversation will have um, enough um, engaging uh, uh, ideas and, and, and conversation points that will keep everybody in, t- in tune. Um, but uh, the beginning of our message really is all about two different ancient cities, um, and one of them still exists. Uh, and then in a few minutes, we'll talk about another one that, uh, uh, that still exists, but we'll talk about one up front that um, has not existed uh, in nearly 4,000 years. So um, I think we'll get the bad news out of the way first, and we'll talk about um, a, a city, really a couple of cities, that uh, nobody really likes to remember, but we kind of remember them for really all the wrong reasons. Um, so everybody, everybody's heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. We all know about these two cities. They really were a part of a neighboring uh, community, a, a kind of a, a metropolis that included five cities, but we hear Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned sort of like Minneapolis and St. Paul, not to do that to those cities. They, they shouldn't be in the conversation with these two, um, but kind of those sister city um, uh, kind of situation. Um, Sodom is really the city that gets most of the attention in the scripture as it's the one that is located um, in the, one of the more darker narratives in the entire Bible. Uh, of course, most of us know the story, uh, mo- know, know enough of the story. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah were bustling cities of their day because of their location in an ancient salt mine. Um, salt was as almost as valuable as water in the ancient world um, because it was the only thing that would allow food to be preserved from one day to another. Uh, for this reason, Sodom and Gomorrah and their other three cities in the valley became home to very wealthy businesses and very wealthy businessmen because of their exporting resources to the known world. Um, Sodom, like a lot of wealthy cities in the ancient world, and even to this day, um, became very much an insiders-only club. Um, it was a place where guests were invited in. Uh, you couldn't just wander in on your own, or you wouldn't want to. Uh, guests were invited in and you had to earn your place in the city. And like most cities in the ancient world of this caliber, um, hedonism and indulging in immorality was the standard practice. The, the rule of thumb in Sodom and Gomorrah were there was no gods and there were no laws. Only men and their quest for pleasure, pride, and power. Now, fun fact, maybe not so fun, men have a funny way of maintaining their power. 
exerting their pride and, and finding ways to hold on to and, and have more pleasure. Now, they find ways to demean and demoralize others until it becomes a sport. Whether with words or actions, elite societies are preserved by the strong dominating the weak and putting, this fear, putting fear in as many as they can. Uh, one of the most grotesque ways that has ever showed itself is how it played out in Sodom. Now, heaven forbid you stumble into the city unawares of where you were, uh, because if you came in looking lost, you would more likely become a slave to the city's underworld of trafficking. Uh, if you came in looking like you were a somebody, you were most likely would not make it through the night alive. That's how awful this place was. Now, in, in basically, we can say this about any city of the likes. When men Next slide. When men get absolute power, they become absolutely corrupt. Everything and everyone becomes an object of lust, and that's the story of Sodom. Nothing and no one were off limits. And for this reason, for this reason, the Bible tells us that God sought to save the world from his festering sin. He decided Sodom could not be saved. He sent his angels to investigate the violence and the immorality that cried out before him only to confirm their suspicions. Of course, God, would, God could tell from afar how bad things were, but he mainly went to rescue one of his own who had backslid his way down the valley of salt. That story, of course, is well documented in Genesis 18 and 19 where the angels are targets of a violent, decadent mob. It's here where they encounter the wayward Lot and his family, who they came to rescue. Lot was the nephew of Abraham and Sarah. Most of us know that. Um, he had stayed far too long and compromised far too much, relocating and raising his family in the sin city. Now, the angels, they prove stronger than the gang attempting to assault them, and they lead Lot and his wife and his daughters up the mountain uh, adjacent to the city um, and bring them to safe, safety from the looming destruction. Now, what could have been mistaken from a, of a, uh, uh, to a meteor shower uh, begins raining down on the city as Lot and his daughters continue their flight up the mountain. Now, meanwhile, his wife looks back, despondent that her home she didn't really want to leave was being destroyed. As the fire began to burst the mines, she was engulfed in a pillar of salt. So, we all know about Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't got to go into much detail, more detail about that. Uh, but, you know, you got to ask the question, what's the legacy of Sodom? Nothing of the over 200 square miles of metropolis is left to salvage. The already lowlands became even lower. Only Mount Sodom remains the very range that Lot and his family fled to. Now, if you visit Mount Sodom today, you can. If you visit Mount Sodom today, you'll find some eerie landmarks that remain. Pillars of salt, one that looks strikingly similar to a person. As you stand over the lowest point on the earth, the Dead Sea, which surfaced measures in at 1,400 feet below sea level, 1,000 feet lower than any landmark in our country. It's really quite beautiful, though. You wouldn't know that it once was the home to um, really bright and, and, and popular cities. Uh, this wonderful um, kind of natural spa is a, a place that many in the area retreat to for vacations. Now, it's not your typical lake or your typical day at the sea. Um, this 200 square foot area was left um, a crater of salt originally, and when the channels begin to crack in the earth, the Jordan River eventually filled it up. Uh, mixing with the salt, it's 35% or more salt, so when you get in the water, it's the only one of its kind that you can actually float in without any effort. Don't need a, 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 a tube or anything. You can just float um, almost walk on it, really. Um, but a natural spa 
isn't the only legacy of Sodom. Uh, but how Lot was spared is what we normally talk about. Uh, remember, Lot was Abraham's nephew. Abraham had shared his faith with Lot. Lot had no doubt placed his faith in Abraham's God. Yet the world was too tempting. And Sodom got its hooks in Lot. He became a businessman, became a leader there. And the money and the fame was just too rich. But Abraham believed that God's hooks in Lot were deeper and stronger. God sent his angels to enter the city, and Abraham approached the Lord that day uh, prior to the destruction with his concern over what might be brewing. And this is the snapshot of their conversation. Genesis 18, so the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, that's a pretty powerful question, a theological question that Abraham puts on the Lord. Maybe God saw this coming. I'm pretty sure he was prepared for it. But he says, hey, God, you're not going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. I know the place is awful. I know the violence and the sin and morality is so great. And it's offensive to you and people are suffering at the, you know, at the power of these people. But would you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then he asked God this really remarkable question. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Notice he didn't start out at a high number. Uh, probably about 2,000 or so people lived in Sodom in each of the cities, about 10,000 in the whole valley. So Abraham's thinking, hey, if there's just 1% or so or less uh, of, of righteous in the city, would you sweep away them and not spare them? Would you not spare it for the 50? So God, Abraham believes that God is so good and that God is so gracious that he would spare the wicked city for 50 people that would be righteous in it. And he, and he presses God. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And again, a pretty heavy theological question. Shouldn't the judge do the right and the just thing? So God says, Abraham, I hear you. If I find 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place. Well, it's a play on the idea that Sodom was a, was a, was a haven for salt mines. Salt was a preservative of meat and of food. And God says, if there are just 50 righteous in the city, I will preserve the whole city for their sake. That their righteousness is enough to keep the whole place from rotting. Now, Abraham stood for what was right. He had compassion for those that were being swept in the wrong, though, and he knew a lot better. He's like you as someone that you love that you know is doing wrong, but you believe there's good in them. You believe that their heart is better than what they've settled for. In a play on the salt, an idea of preservation, God promises to preserve the city if it was only with a small righteous remnant. Abraham is afraid that there are far less than 50 righteous in the city, though. He bargains with God down to wanting to see just how much grace God was willing to show to the wicked on behalf of the righteous, and he gets him down to hear. Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, Abraham, for the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. So it turns out there weren't even ten. So God decided the best option would be to spare Lot and his family, but sweep away the rest. So instead of making Lot and his family suffer, he was going to bring them out of the city, but the rest would suffer. Now, Sodom's sin was too great. Only a few people would be spared from the wicked city. God's solution was to take his own from the city, and the summary of that story goes like this. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived.
What happened to Lot and his daughters, you might wonder? Of course, his wife became a pillar of salt, but the Lot and his two daughters fled to the mountains of Zor. Now, let's just say God may have taken them out of the city, but it was hard to get the city out of them. Lot's daughters had a great sense of shame and fear that comes over them when they escaped the city. They believed they'll never be good enough for anyone. They probably wouldn't have been based on the culture of the day. Wondering what future there would be for them, rather than trusting in God for redemption and hope, they resort to a pretty low place. So much that Lot and his daughters would forever be symbols of taboo in ancient Israel, leading to a strong disdain for a particular type of immorality. You can blame Lot for going to Sodom in the first place. You can blame his daughters for being driven by fear. You can blame society for driving them to this place of desperation. But ultimately, ultimately, sin did what sin always does. It isolates and it marginalizes, it stains and it damages with an ultimate goal of erasing one's legacy and memory completely. If there's anyone in history that sin was pretty successful with, I'd say sin had its way with Lot and its his daughters. And they're all forgotten offspring because to this day they're hardly talked about. And if they are talked about, it's considered a dark footnote in Israel's story. A story that isn't forgotten, though, and rather actually is bright. A story that's often celebrated is one of the polar opposite of the spectrum of Lot's story and of Lot's daughter's story um, is the story that we're going to embark on and study over the next couple of weeks. And that is the story of Ruth. Now, whereas Lot and his daughters are forgotten survivors of Sodom, Ruth is a celebrated damsel of a very famous little town of Bethlehem. Now, again, why would you bring up Sodom and Lot in the same sentence, in the same conversation as Ruth and Bethlehem? Maybe to contrast, but I think there'll be something that will come together later on in the message. Just stay tuned. Maybe most significant about Ruth's story is that it introduces us to this little town of Bethlehem that becomes very significant in the rest of the Bible and becomes very significant in our stories of faith. Now, Ruth's story, though, if you take it away out of the, the larger context, most of us know Ruth's story as if it's a fairy tale. We don't really conclude Ruth in the larger narrative of the Bible. We think about Ruth as an isolated story about a, 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 a kind of in a fairy tale frame of mind about this widowed, widowed girl who had no place to go, who comes in with her mother-in-law to a town that she never knew. She was pitied by a wealthy landowner who then falls in love with her, and as her Prince Charming, he rescues her. That's how we know Ruth. That's how we teach Ruth. That's how we tell the story, isn't it? While in some ways that is the story of Ruth, I believe that undersells a much larger, more complicated story begging to be told by this book. I think we often talk about Ruth in regards to where things are going in the Bible, but not where, with where things had been. If we're going to really appreciate what Ruth sets up, we've got to know what Ruth resolves, because there's a lot that's led up to Ruth. Now, I want to underscore just how vital the story of Ruth is, the book of Ruth, and Ruth herself is, to the greater story of the Bible, the greater story being told from front to back. I don't think it's hyperbolic, and I don't think it's an overstatement for us to say that Ruth is really the framework uh, and really establishes fundamental principles for our theology and for our faith that we take for granted. Ruth is all about a choice, not the choice that she makes that we're going to read about, but another choice that God makes apart from this text. Now, Ruth, just so you know, is chronologically takes place at the same time as the last part of Judges, Judges 17 through Judges 21. In this 10-year window, Ruth takes place concurrently with those chapters. 
And all that you need to know about that period of time in history is found in the way that Judges ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. So that doesn't really tell a good story. That actually is telling us that the Israel experiment had been all but a failure by the end of Judges. God's efforts and work to establish a people through which he might save the world appeared to be dead in the water. God had been patient through many false starts and given several second chances, but by the end of the Judges' generation, it seemed there was no path forward. Now, you have to understand, God created a perfect world. He established a paradise for people to dwell in and prosper. But every plan that God implemented was always short-lived. There was plan A, which was Adam's story. Of course, we know what Adam did. He sinned and Eve with him, and they fell in the garden they were banished from, and, they, and the generations spiraled out of control from them. And then God flooded the earth and then tried to start a new paradise. At Babel, all creation came together, but things went really the wrong way, and rather than coming together around God, they came together around themselves and turned away from God. So plan A didn't work, plan B didn't work, so then God got into the long game. God started with a man named Abraham, who he then, he then would begin to build a tribe through, and then he would take that tribe and put them in captivity in Egypt. Plan C and D was the captive Israel were brought out, delivered by Moses. And then, of course, the next phase of the plan was meant to be an 11-day journey from Sinai to Israel. But that 11-day journey turned into a 40-year journey because they just would not remain faithful to God. And every time he led them in one direction, they wanted to go in the other direction. So for 40 years, they wandered through the wilderness. Setback after setback, it seemed as if they would never get there. But God was persistent. Joshua took the reins after Moses, and Joshua led the people into the land, took over the land for them against their enemies, and Joshua left the judges to rule. The judges would not be kings. They would point to the fact that God was king and that his law was to be their government and was to govern them. So plans J, K, and L was the, was the judges' generation. Judges reminded people that God was king. His law would govern the people. If they just simply obeyed God, everything would be perfect. But that's not how things went. There's a breakdown in this generation. People reject that God is their king. They reject his law as their guide, and they descend into lawlessness. To them, there was no king. They just did what was right in their own eyes. Driven by the lust of their eyes, the lust of their flesh, the pride and desire for their own fame and their own glory. I cannot punctuate this enough. Judges ends with such despondence and hopelessness because even to the few that had held on to their faith, there seemed to be no more chances. There seemed to be no pathway forward. There seemed to be no more backup plans. But God wasn't done yet. But God wasn't giving up yet. That's how every comeback story begins, isn't it? There was no hope. There was no way. There was nothing good, nowhere in sight, but God had another plan. I mean, they had burned through a lot of plans, but God believed this next plan, the one he had up his sleeve waiting for the right moment to play, this one might finally work. Plan R, the redemption plan, or as we'll call it, the Ruth plan. 
tucked between Judges and 1 Samuel is the story of Ruth. This book contains so many treasures about God, the secrets to knowing God, possibly more than any other book. And I, I want to make this very, very clear. Ruth's story captures just how possible redemption really is. See, you may think that you come from a family that, in a lineage that cannot be redeemed. You may think that your story is too solid, too broken, too complicated for God to redeem. You may feel as if you've used up every chance you could ever be allowed. But I think Ruth's story can change even the most pessimistic, gloomy, and unlikely outlook. Ruth's story is a bridge from death to life, from condemned to redeemed. So I want to just beg you, if there's any area of your life where you've given up in and you've given up on, if there's any person you've given up on, if you look in the mirror and you have more doubts than you have faith, Ruth's story reminds you and can convince you, I believe, that redemption is possible. Maybe what's most inspiring is that Ruth wasn't born into God's family. She wasn't even Jewish. She wasn't only born out of God's family. She was born as far out of God's family as one could be in her day. And this is where our conversation gets so incredible. And if you don't believe the Bible, this story ought to make you think twice about your disbelief. You may have been told it's fiction, it's not historical, it's contradictory. But hear me out. This story punctuates just how unexpected the Bible, the story really is that what most would make up never actually would happen, right? The things that you would expect never happened because people would always fail and yet God would always intervene. Now, I'm not trying to make a comeback or restoration seem more unlikely than it already is. This is just how dire things were for Israel because nobody would have ever imagined that it could get as dark as it was for Israel at this point in their history. At this point, people were so far away from God, so contrary to his desire, there was none that did good and none that sought him out. And here's a wrench in most of our understanding of the Bible. The epicenter for unfaithfulness was Bethlehem and the surrounding cities of Judea. Now, we know Bethlehem as the great city that great things came out of, but in this generation, Bethlehem perhaps was the epicenter of the unfaithfulness that was ruining Israel. Maybe you have doubts about that. It seemed that Israel's drift from God all but centered around some strange activity, particularly coming out of Bethlehem. There had been a religious breakdown, and of course after that there was a farther breakdown. Samson had ruined the moral authority of the judges. No one took the judges seriously anymore because Samson was a joke and he didn't take his job seriously. And even though he had God on his side, he didn't always choose God's side. And when he chose some immoral lifestyles, it ruined the reputation of the judges. And no one followed their lead anymore. As a result, there was a decentralization of the faith community. No one would go to Shiloh to worship anymore. People just kind of started making things up as they wanted to, and they started worshiping in their own ways, in their own homes, separate from the rest of the nation, and they begin to kind of make up their own ideas and laws about God. And this vacuum in culture um, really, really caused a, a breakdown in the faith of Israel. You see, we all do this, whether we realize it or not. If we don't worship God, we will find something to worship. If we don't put our faith in God, we will find someone or something to put our faith in. We have a God-shaped hole in our heart. We naturally cling to things that give us peace and purpose and joy and hope or the semblance thereof. We must be aware of this tendency to turn to idols if we don't turn to God. We cling to people and places and things, money, power, sports, hobbies, politicians, 
Only God can fulfill and satisfy your heart, though. Meanwhile, in the world, eventually certain figures will rise up and will fill these voids, and they will become idols, which is the case for Israel. In, in Israel, a certain Levite from Bethlehem sees an opportunity to gain popularity and fame rather than remain faithful to God, which is usually the downfall of any religious figure or anybody's life. For all of us, really, fame is always dangling right in front of us, tempting us with just how little or how much we need to give in at a moment. In this case, the Levite was tempted with an opportunity to become a renowned man's personal priest. And this was one of the many events that led to the downfall of the faith community. And what happens next is what always happens. Every time there's a religious breakdown, there's always a moral breakdown. It always happens that way. So judges spotlight a moral failure from the one you'd least suspect it and from those that you're not that surprised it would come from. The Levite himself acquires a mistress from Bethlehem, which seemed to be a home of some trafficking of the likes. She diligently tries to escape the relationship. She runs back home to Bethlehem and finds refuge in her father. But because of the Levite's clout, even the girl's father doesn't suspect anything's wrong. And she, he forces his daughter to rejoin the man. What happens next is really ominous. The Levite and his mistress are traveling from Bethlehem to another small town just 10 miles or so north. The Levite decides that he and his mistress would lodge in the open square in the middle of the city like a city park. As was custom to Israel, it was encouraged by the law, the towns were to be friendly to visitors and strangers and those looking for places to rest because Israel was supposed to be different than the pagan cities. Israel was supposed to be different than the likes of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everyone was welcome. Every city was a sanctuary. It was a place of equality and morality, or so it was meant to be. Until this generation, where Bethlehem became a hot spot for trafficking in her neighboring city of Gabeah was a hot spot for something else. If you would look at your Bibles down at Judges chapter 19. Verse number 16 is how this story wraps up. Just then an old man came and from the work in the field at the evening who was also from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gabeah whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and he said, where do you come from? Where are you going? Where did you come from? So he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem and Judah. Now I am going to the house of the Lord, which was his own house because he had his own little religion. But there is no one who will take me into his house. But he says, hey, we can't find anywhere to stay, but that's okay. We'll just sleep outside. That should be safe, right? Although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys, bread and wine for myself and for your female servant and for the young man who is with you, there is not anything, there is not anything, there is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So the man says, hey, you know, we offered people some money and some things to let us stay with them. They didn't want to, but we should be okay. This is a safe city, right? This is Israel. Of course, we can sleep outside. There's not going to be any problems. And the old man says, you must not be aware of just how things operate around here anymore. Whatever you do, do not sleep in the park. Now, if you've heard that sentence before, it's because it's from Genesis 19. When Lot told the angels 
They don't want to sleep outside. But this is Israel. <laughs> Why would that be a problem? Verse 21. So he brought them into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys. They washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were enjoying themselves, suddenly men of the city. Now I've read this before, haven't you? Suddenly men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, to the old man. Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now we've read that before, haven't we? Genesis 19, bring out the man. But this is Israel, right? Verse 23, but the man and the master of the house went out, out to them and said, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly, seeing this man has come into my house. Do not commit this outrage. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man do not such a vile thing. Now that phrase, humble them, because their way of letting people know that you weren't welcome was to humiliate them, to abuse them, to get whatever they wanted out of them. But the men would not heed him. So, they, so the men took his concubine and brought her out to them. Now the priest said, well, she's been kind of troubled to me for a while anyway, so just, I'll take her. And they knew her and abused her all night. Verse 26, Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. She died. Now I won't, I won't read the rest because if you think it can't get any worse, it does. The priest is so indifferent and callous toward his violated and murdered mistress that he does an awful thing to send a message to the, to the city, to the country. I don't know what's worse, what he does, or the vile intentions and actions of the townspeople. But here's what I do know. Israel in the land of Judea, where Benjamin and Judah called home, was no better than Sodom and Gomorrah. The result is a civil war across the hill countries of Judea. The entire nation comes together to fight. Not because they were any better. Now hear me clearly. They weren't any different, but they wanted to be white knights against the city that showed its true colors first. They knew they would do the very same thing if given the opportunity. They just wanted to be seen as if they were on the right side so that if God decided to do something because they expected he would, they would be on his side. They were terrified at what might become of the land. They were terrified of what might be around the corner. Now look down at verse number 30. So it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. As in, this has not ever happened in our country. And the last place this kind of thing happened, it was turned into a, a lake. They were terrified. God sends a famine over the land. The people saw this as just a warning of what was coming next, as something worse. Some people even began leaving the country, afraid that they would not have a home if they didn't. Flip over a page or two to Ruth chapter 1 as we close. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of 
Moab. He, his wife, and his two sons. The house of bread was desolate, resource depleted, morally deficient, and spiritually dead. This man named Elimelech is just one of many who gave up on revival for the promised land. The land once flowing with milk and honey might soon be overflowing with the Dead Sea after the fire falls and smoke clears and melts the mountain that, that was between the two. He and his family head across the Jordan River back into the wilderness, and where do they go but the land of Moab? What an insult it would have been to the prior generations. Moab was an enemy to Israel as they tried to take the promised land. They spread adultery and sent armies to fight them. Moab was considered a reproach to Israel. Marriage to his people was forbidden. Association was frowned upon. But here are some of Bethlehem's own moving there. And they don't just move there, but verse 2 tells us that Elimelech and his wife Naomi, the sons of his two, and his two sons, Malon and Chilion, of Bethlehem, they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab, the one whose name was Orpah, and the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about ten years. And while they stayed there, the two boys died, and only the women survived. And this is how Ruth enters not just our story, but the redemption story. As soon as she enters it, she could have quickly been removed from it. It's likely that Ruth and Orpah were sisters that the brothers had to arrange and work for uh, to, to pay off some debt to their father. When the boys died, they were, there was no fallback plan in the culture, not even their own. And Naomi, considered already too old to be desired in Moab, was forced to become slaves in the fields of Moab. Naomi could have went home, but like everyone else in the land, she expected her home wouldn't be there much longer because judgment seemed imminent. But then one day, one day Naomi heard the unthinkable. Whispers spread that Israel had seen rain and harvest for the first time in 10 years. That famine was coming to an end. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law and that she might return from the country of Moab. For she heard in the country of Moab that the, that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. All of a sudden, people who had been bracing for wor the worst for ten years, they opened their eyes one at a time and they realized, maybe, maybe this isn't going to end like we thought it would. All the prophets are saying that we're next in line Oh, everybody's saying that there's no hope. But the rain's falling, and the harvest is growing, and the storage barns are filling back up. Ruth and Orpah heard this and thought, what kind of God actually cares and favors his people, even when, especially when they've done nothing to deserve it? What kind of God is that? Their pagan religion would call for them to do all sorts of sacrifices and rituals to appease the gods. But according to Naomi, Israel had gotten worse and worse and worse. None of them sought the Lord, and he responds with favor? Naomi can tell that her daughters-in-laws are smitten by this good news, but then she gives them some bad news. Verse number 8. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Why didn't she want them to go back with her? Why didn't she think they could go back with her? Well, you, you see, 
they were Moabites. And while the Moabite people had their own version of their beginning, Israel knew the real story. Both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Lot was blamed for creating this problem. His immoral sin, after God saved his life, created this perennial enemy for Israel. So the Moabites were always a, a reproach. They were an embarrassment. They were a thorn in the side of Israel. And Naomi knew, I can't take these daughters of Moab to the land with me. No one will welcome them. God probably wouldn't even want them. And with the recent events having such a similarity, the last thing the people needed to see was a reminder of how close they got to the same judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Naomi convinced Orpah to stay in Moab, but Ruth was persistent. She didn't know what she didn't know, but she believed, she felt compelled that there could be a new beginning for her in Bethlehem. Ruth stands against her mother-in-law's uh, advice to go back home in verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law to leave, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you. And this is in a poetic form because this was a, this was a prophecy that came out of her mouth. Retreat, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now, let me just make this very clear. There wasn't a way for someone like Ruth to get into the story. There was no entrance for someone like her. There were just walls to keep people like her out, especially Moabites. And for Ruth to think that she was even welcome, what do you know that I don't know, Ruth? And what do you know that those men back home don't know? But Ruth said, you know what? I believe that your God is inviting me and I believe that he's welcoming me and I am going to cling to you no matter what. I will get as close to him as he allows even if they kill us both upon entrance. Naomi relents because she saw how hungry Ruth was to belong somewhere. She saw how impacted Ruth was by the semblance of good news and grace from the Jewish God. But I think Naomi had a, had a greater reason. If God had spared Israel from the same sins that led Sodom's destruction, he must have a reason for doing so. And wasn't it a bit ironic? Wasn't it a bit ironic that there was a Moabite girl clinging to the Jewish God? I mean, isn't it a bit ironic just after what happened in Israel was a carbon copy of what happened in Sodom and God judged Sodom, but he didn't judge Israel. And yet it seemed as if all this was setting up this beautiful redemption story in the making. The land of Israel was spiritually dead. And how ironic that a girl of the people that had been ridiculed had a greater or a great as desire to know God than anyone there. 
I love verse 22 after they come back to the land. Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, as in the writers wanting us to understand how big of a deal this was, Ruth the Moabite came with her who returned from the country of, yeah, of Moab. They came to Bethlehem and when they came in, the bread didn't stop. It only kept piling up. That verse is so monumental, it's so crucial and it's a statement of God's power to redeem. God's power to redeem Sodom and Lot's story. People thought the tribe of Moab would never amount to anything because of, look where they came from. It's a testament of God's loyalty to Bethlehem. His loyalty and his desire to redeem their story, to redeem Ruth's story. So I guess if you, the purpose of all this, why did God spare Israel from its great sin, but he didn't spare Sodom. Ruth is the reason. Ruth made a choice to seek the Lord while God made a choice to save the world. Because you know where this goes, don't you? Ruth, the Moabite, the Gentile, the descendant of Lot in the immoral relationship. Ruth was the great-grandmother of David, who of course brought us Jesus. And by Jesus, we can all come to God. That's why God spared Israel. See, Ruth isn't just so much about her rescue. It's about our rescue. In a strange way, the legacy of Sodom and Gomorrah isn't all about destruction because through Lot came Moab and through Moab came Ruth. And instead of sparing just a few and destroying the rest, God spared the whole nation. God winked at this rated R episode in history because he was committed to plan R. And clearly Ruth was committed to him. Rather than taking out the city or the righteous, he brought a young girl in who didn't know how she would fit into the story. She didn't know all that we've talked about today. She just wanted to know God. She just wanted a relationship with someone real, someone good, someone loyal. And to this day, Anyone who comes to God finds exactly what Ruth found, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who saves, even when, especially when, we least deserve it. A God who is loyal to us, even when we don't deserve it. Abraham asked the Lord, would a God of justice sweep away the righteous? After Ruth, there's no doubting the goodness, the mercy, and the love of our God. Years later, Ruth's great-grandson would write this. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endures forever. If you want to know the proof of that, my great-grandmother was a Moabite who wasn't welcome according to the law of the land. She was from an embarrassing relationship, from a story that everyone likes to forget. But she came into the land during a time that Israel was no better. But thanks be to God, when we weren't any better, He was enough. His mercy was enough for us at our worst. That's the story 
of how we get to Ruth. And that's the story of how the mercy of God is everlasting, even to all of you. We're quick to remind people of what God did to Sodom. But maybe, maybe we need to remember what God didn't do to Israel. They deserved it. But mercy holds back what we deserve and gives us what we don't. Let me pray for you. Father, it is beyond me to, measure, to muster up the words to give you in response to that. I got, just got to say what David said. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. God, I'm sure somebody here today needed to hear this because the world might tell them how bad they are. It might reflect how bad they are back to them. Every day they're reminded of how bad they are how much of a mess they've made, how wrong they've gotten it. Maybe religion has told them there's not any place for you here. But Lord, you've shouted from the windows of heaven today that there is room. Ruth was persistent, even though Naomi said, I don't know about this, girl. Ruth believed that there was something more to the heart of God. She believed that there was mercy for her. And we know that there's mercy for us because Jesus spread his arms wide to make sure we know that his mercy endures forever and ever. God, use this invitation. If there's anybody in the house today that needs to receive you, that needs to come back to you, that needs to find help from you, Lord, let them find this altar to be a conduit from heaven to earth. And may their prayers be met with your power. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.